Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 231. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here is your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 231 you're listening to. My guest today is Brendan Duffy. Brendan is a three-time Grammy-nominated producer engineer. He lives in Davis, California, and he has spent many, many years in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, working with a wide variety of artists whose names I honestly, if I read them to you, I'd slaughter. I'd completely blow it. So I'm just going to leave that for the bio. How about that? He has worked with The Mission, 50 Cent, Lulu Santos, and uh, many others. And he owned NorCal Studios, which was his studio in Sao Paulo, Brazil, for a decade. And now he is mixing and mastering in his home facility located in uh, Davis, California, which is not too far from me, about an hour and a half or so. And that is it. So Brendan Duffy coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups. Let's talk about investing in yourself. I cannot stress enough the importance of investing in yourself. Continued education, it it helps you better understand your craft. It helps you see it from uh, different angles. It can also lead to new contacts new gigs, uh, seminars, books, trade shows, video courses, and podcasts. Are, they're just a few of the things that come to my mind, but plan on allocating a little money in your budget to invest in these types of education, unless they're free, of course. But, uh, you know, consider foregoing one subscription over another so you can pay for a little extra education. You know, maybe you've got a subscription to Netflix and HBO. Well, why don't you give one of those up? It'll pay dividends down the line if money's tight. On that topic of learning, do not think for one minute that you cannot learn something new from those that are younger than you. Just because you have experience does not mean you have all of the experience. Younger people are learning things based on new ideas. They are smart. They're driven. They do not carry the when I was your age mentality that us older people do. If you think you know everything already and are the smartest person in the room, then you cannot be taught. There's nothing left to learn for you. If you think that, you will stagnate and eventually you'll be left behind. Open your mind. Use your experience. If you have all that experience, use that experience to find the holes in your own knowledge and be open to new ways of doing things, no matter who is teaching you. Always be learning. There's always something new to learn on a new mix, a new film location gig, uh, a new sound design gig, a new mastering, a new tracking gig, whatever it is. Always be learning. Look for the thing you can learn in the project. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. 
What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Brendan Duffy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making the time for me. Thank you for inviting me. So for the audience, Brendan had originally reached out to me to do some guest lecturing at a college recording program that he is a part of. In discussing it and kind of learning a bit about him, I realized his story was had the basis of some pretty compelling elements. <laughs> and I thought it was a no-brainer to have him on. So I'm really happy that he's with us today. So let's just dive right in, man. Did you grow up in Northern California? Yeah, I was born and raised in Davis, California. At what point for you did audio become a relevant thing from a professional standpoint? Right after I graduated high school, I knew I wasn't going to be working in the business world or anything of such. I really wanted to do music. And I had owned a four-track Tascam with my friend Nick Carvajal, and then we recorded bands on, and I was already doing live sound. So I eventually went to Sacramento City College, and they had a recording arts program there. And this 
gentleman named John Altman was the teacher and he was just wonderful. And I started working. I got a job at the G Street Pub as the head sound guy in Davis, installed the new PA system in there, built a front of house, worked three or four nights a week and started making a living right off the bat. I'm going to school for it. The school was slow going. I wasn't very good at school at first. The audio part I was really good at, but the geography, geology, math was a little difficult. But yeah, that was the start. That's always tough when you're in a program like that, because I'm sure your interest is so driven towards audio that it's hard to get some enthusiasm for the other subjects that really don't spark joy, as they say. Well, I think back then, honestly, I think I had the enthusiasm. I was just a little more interested in having fun for a while. When I was a kid, I just wanted to party. And I was at live sound gigs all the time. So I wasn't that responsible. I would take advantage of the after party at people's houses and stuff like that when I should be going home on a Thursday night to study for cultural anthropology the next day. So it took me a while to readjust that aspect of my life. But it eventually occurred. <laughs> you were doing some live sound work. And if I have my story straight, you transferred to Chico State. Is that right? Yeah, that was something my, to be very honest, my mom wanted me to do. When I was 19, my dad died suddenly of cancer, just one day to the next, and I needed to do something. It just sort of was a wake-up call for me, and I eventually asked my mom, hey, mom, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go to Chico State in the recording arts program. And then I sort of started my push uphill to that. And I was working at Maritime Hall in San Francisco. A guy named Keith Yanserak, who I met at the G Street Pub, invited me out there one day. And I, from one night I was doing the G Street Pub, the next night I was doing monitors for Slash's Snake Pit. Wow. So it was just like a jump. And I started doing sound there and then touring with bands. And I discovered I really didn't like touring that much. In fact, I hated it. And so it compelled me to work really hard. And I went to the Chico State program and I did the interview and they pushed me into the last year of the program, basically. So I did a year of the program. And while I was there, I was assistant engineer for one summer with Sylvia Massey up at Radio Star Studios. So we made this really cool album for a band called Acroma. The album's called Orbitals. And it was just, just the lift me up I sort of needed to get started in the recording world more professionally, I would say. I want to back up for a bit. I do want to talk to you definitely about Sylvia and, and her impact on you, but I also want to rewind back to the death of your father. Why was that a wake-up call for you? It's a traumatic event, I understand, and, and, yeah, I'm, and yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. I was 19, and I really related to a lot to my dad. Mm -hmm. You know, my brother's like my mom, I'm like my dad, and it was just next Tuesday will, I think, be 22 years. Okay. And so I'm still... I'll be honest, I'm sort of at a loss for words when that comes. It's just like a gaping hole. Yeah. And at that point, I knew my dad would, it was sort of like, what would my dad want me to do? It'd be, you know, go get a career, go get a college degree, do something with yourself to give yourself some security rather than this sort of freelance way of life that I had at, at the moment. I'm reluctant to even call it a silver lining, but it possibly, would you say it was the kick in the ass that you needed to to start getting serious? Yeah, definitely was. I think I would have eventually gotten serious because music's always been much more important and recording. I mean, I always wanted to be a music producer, even when I was in live sound. When I was 13, I saw that Bob Rock Metallica one year in the life. It just like floored me. My friend and I went out and bought a four track and that was the end of it. I wanted to be a Bob Rock. It was a 13 year old kid. It was just 
when I was 19, adjusting life to actually go and do that. So moving to Chico, working with Sylvia and being away from home and being able to, you know, full-time access to a recording studio. Whereas before I'd only get in every once in a while with my band, we'd record at the hangar or at this guy named Lawrence's in Davis. He had a beautiful studio in his house with a Trident ADB and a bunch of DA38s and 88s and Summit outboard gear. So Chico allotted me the ability to be in a studio constantly. And especially with Sylvia, it was just, you know, once I got there, I was on cloud nine and I just couldn't stop going to the studio. Talk to me a little bit about, about the impact that Sylvia had on you. I actually had no idea who Sylvia was. And my teacher, Joe Alexander, said, oh, Brendan, this Sylvia Massey, you know, who did the Tool records and a bunch of other stuff. She's looking for an intern. Do you want to go interview? Hell yeah. Put on my best shirt and pants and made a resume and drove up there and walked in and there was Sylvia. And I did an interview and we ended up talking for two or three hours. And the band was already recording at that point. She invited me to come and do a recording that I couldn't do. I was going to drive back down the mountain to Chico. But she said, yep, you're hired. So they found me a place to live. And a couple weeks later, after school was done, I just moved up there for the summer and was, you know, in her studio as much as I could be. She gave me the alarm code and went, you know, when we're not here, just don't mess with the recording stuff and do whatever you want. So on the off hours, I was making my band's record and playing with all the amplifiers. And she had just miles of outboard gear, Fairchilds and everything you could Basically, everything I have in my plug-in folder now. <laughs> <laughs> she had uh, it a physical was awesome. format. And she's a, she's a crazy lady. I had never seen a producer like that. I mean, she does some, she calls it recording unhinged. I just call it batshit crazy. It was just shocking as a kid. You see Bob Rock all serious, and then you see Sylvia. Yay! <laughs> and just, it was great. It was sort of a breath of fresh air. And I sat for a month with a gentleman named Rich Veltrop, who was doing the bulk of the mixing well, along with Sylvia and I would just sit there and drink coffee and watch him mix all day and do all his patching and his recalls. It was great. I mean, it was my first footstep into how, how to make a big record. Interesting. And how long did you stay there at Radio Star? A couple months. I think it was up there a couple months. Yeah. It was a long time ago. I can't remember, but I think it was a couple months, two months. For the listener, I highly encourage you to go back to my interview with Sylvia to hear her story, in particular, the the time period of Radio Star Studios. It's quite informational. And coincidentally, as we record this interview, uh, the Radio Star building is for sale. So, Yeah. I got there. I was actually the first intern to come from a different place. She had all local kids. And then I went up there and was the first, I think, person who was hired from an actual college. And then another gentleman named Todd Monfalcon eventually came up there with me. And he, I think he still works in L.A. as an audio engineer. What were the big takeaways from that time period for you? Seeing a, a major label production, I think that was one of Sylvia's last like huge budget A&R people productions that occurred in her career. She had plenty more large ones, but that was just, that was to a massive scale. And it was just really cool to see the organizational factor and everything, the nuts and the bolts of a studio. The audio aspect was, of course, what I was really looking at, but being able to see the day in and day out of a recording facility 
was incredibly interesting to me. And it was not a, your usual recording facility. It was in this old vaudeville theater, and there was some really interesting stuff being done there. So you wrapped that up, and you graduated in 2003. And then in 2004, you moved to Canada. Yeah, I had gone up with my mom on a trip to Canada. My whole family's Canadian. And we went to the Banff Center for Fine Arts, and I just went, I have to be, I have to work here. I was very interested in classical music recording, Tony Meister type of stuff. I trained as a classical pianist as a child and played saxophone and a bunch of other stuff. I was just really interested in that world. And I ended up applying in my last semester, and I got the fellowship or the work study they had done there they had there. And I went up there and was taught by Teresa Leonard and a bunch of other engineers how to record classical music. It was great because every day you got to record and mix and master and map incredible facilities with incredible microphones. So I I believe I stayed three months there. Intense program. Yes, very intense. It's just basically, here's the keys, go. You're recording. And a lot of, I met a lot of great engineers there. Jonathan Stevens, who's now one of the music directors for plenty of films at Skywalker Ranch. And he worked, he and his wife worked on King Kong, The Lord of the Rings. There's quite a few individuals I met up there. I met with Sean Everett, who does Alabama Shakes, and I just believe won his second Grammy. A lot of people come from from the Banff Center, a lot of great engineers. Is that a paid program, like a college program? Yeah, they pay you. Oh, they pay you? Yeah, and they give you a room. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, it's really great. I mean, I got to record Edgar Meyer and a bunch of great classical musicians. And we'd have Darcy Proper came out there. They flew her out there. And she did a, an entire, I think, three or four days of us where she just talked about mastering. It was shockingly incredible to me. But it was only classical music, and I was really interested in rock. So it started to get old at some point for me. I just didn't fit in with the musicians very well. It wasn't my social world, I would say. I really liked the music, but I wanted something more G.I. Joe, I could say, you know, in the trenches and more creative and classical is very, you know, put two microphones up and record the same thing for days on end. And it just got very boring for me. So when that came to an end, you moved to Brazil. Yes. In college, I fell in love with a woman named Ana Claudia. And she was a Brazilian. And when I moved to Banff, she moved back to Brazil. And I had already gone and visited Brazil and for two or three weeks with her. And we were deciding where to live. And when I told her it was minus 30 outside, she went, oh, no, I'm not moving there. And she went online and booked my ticket. I already knew I was basically moving to Brazil. I already told my mom. But we had it in mind that possibly Canada could be an option. But that temperature factor just sort of ruined any chances. So I flew back to Davis, sold my car, sold everything I had, except for my CDs and my guitar amps, my guitars and guitar amp, packed everything into my bags and flew to Brazil to go get married. Wow. Yeah. I had been told by this guy named Johnny, who was this old technician that I went on, did a bunch of shows with him, went on the road. Until you're 35, he said, the only thing you should worry about coming home with is your toothbrush. (laughs) And I always liked that. He goes, nothing's that important. And he goes, take a chance, always take a chance in life. The worst that's going to happen is you come home with your toothbrush. So that's what I thought. And I moved to Brazil. And it's the biggest decision I've made in my life. And I think it's the best. It was 
turned out very well for me. <laughs> Tell me about your time in Brazil. What a, a bit of a culture shock. Yeah, it was a shock, but I, for some reason, our friends always joke, our Brazilian friends here, they introduce us and they go, hello, this is Anna. She's Brazilian, but she's a, actually American. This is Brendan. He's American, but he's actually Brazilian. <laughs> I just adapted really well there. I just really love Brazil. Just something about it is, I felt like fit right in. So when I got there, I spent six months learning the basics of Portuguese, learning how to drive around Sao Paulo which is not easy. It's a city of 20 million people. It's absolutely gargantuan. I mean, learning Sao Paulo was more difficult than learning Portuguese. And after six months, I just made a resume with my wife and sent it to every recording studio I could find. And I got this email back from this very strange name, Lampagina, which means little light. And he said, yeah, I'm recording an album right now. Why don't you come interview with me next month? And it was at a very large studio. So the next month I walked in and he said, we're going to conduct the entire interview in Portuguese. And he showed me around the studio and we ended up going to Studio A, which is their big SSL room. And he asked me what I know how to do, explained I know how to line a tape machine. They had two 24-track Otaris there. And then I knew how to record cockroaches, which is baratas. And I meant to see baterias, which is drums. Um, till today, they have, I think, there, one of the rooms where they store their drums says Sala das Baratas, which means the cockroach room because this air. But I eventually, I worked at Midas for about two and a half years and the owner is a gentleman named Rick Bonagio. And Rick is arguably one of the most legendary rock producers in the history of Brazil. So right off the bat, I started interning and engineering sessions for CPM 22, Charlie Brown Jr., Vanessa Camargo, Rouge, Braz, met a gentleman named Mugi Canazio, which is arguably one of the biggest Latino engineers and producers from Brazil. It was incredible. It was definitely the place I wanted to be at that point in my life. Interesting. And so you felt, obviously, the BAMP Center, you enjoyed the music, didn't quite fit in culturally. And here, you definitely were enjoying the culture and felt at home. Yeah, the studio is where I really got my culture shock. My first real day, I was doing a session. I can't remember what session. I was asked to go up to Studio 2 or Studio B, whatever it was called, and get a hard disk. And Rick had a team of engineers. So he had a gentleman named Rodrigo Castanho, who's a producer and music arranger. Paulo Nyaya, Lampagina, Renato Partidarca, and there was three assistants, me, Papa, and Nilsson. And we had to run around the studios and do what assistants do, but it's not like the United States. So Lampagina said, hey, I need you to go upstairs and grab those hard disks. So I went up to Studio 2, opened the door, and there was a full session running. And, you know, I did that MacGyver sneak behind the couch, behind the producer's rack, don't be seen, crawl, got the two hard disks. And meanwhile, I was doing this. Rodrigo, I hadn't really met yet, was just giving me the, you know, the stink eye. Like, what the hell are you doing? And so I just caught out of the session right away. Something, I did something wrong. Went down and delivered the hard disks. And about five minutes later, I got a call to go up to Rick's office. And I walked in Rick's office and had a flurry of words spewed at me for a couple of moments and it came down to what the hell did you do when you walk into a studio you say hello to everybody you shake everybody's hand give them a hug give them a kiss introduce yourself and it was just the complete opposite 
and what I learned in an internship in the United States. That was the culture shock is how the studio ran and how everything was done. It was everything was the opposite. I really had to twist my brain around to operate in studios there. And, and records were done in not four months. Records were done in four weeks. It was just everything was drastically different. So it was great because I had to lear- I learned how the large market in Brazil ran. Now, while studio protocol may have been different, did you find drastic differences in recording techniques between the United States and Brazil? Particular at this studio, they had very, you'd always microphone the drum set the same way. Really, I wouldn't call ever call it very creative. I remember the setup and the microphones till today because they had to do everything so quickly that, you know, you don't really want to introduce anything new. With Paul and Yaya or Lampagina, when I was doing a disc just with them, a lot of time I could sneak in some of the stuff I learned with Sylvia or learned it in college. And they'd go with it. But for the most part, we took the route that would get us the best results the quickest because the, the turnarounds were... I watched Rick, not that I agreed with it, but I watched Rick mix a track for a band that's basically like Blink-182 there in 15 minutes. Wow. He just popped it up and, okay, it's done. And I just sort of looked at him like, holy shit, this is not happening after you know being in, in studios in the States and taking a day or two to mix a track, maybe even three. This guy did it in 15 minutes. It did not sound good, by the way, and it still doesn't. But the the album sold. It was the best-selling rock album or punk rock album of that decade. Wow. Very, very different. Yes, very different. Now, we had some conversations prior to this interview, and you had told me that your your wife was involved in your recording career, but now that didn't come until after you left this studio and started a studio. Is that correct? Well, actually, the way Midas ran is Rick had a team of producers doing all the work and he would pop in and produce with them and then he'd pop out and do business. But everything that left the studio had his name on it. And I quickly looked at the situation and went, you know what? If the head engineer still doesn't get the credit he deserves... And there's plenty of records I did there that it came out as assistant. And I was getting sort of frustrated, but I knew that's up to them at that point, my credit. And so I wasn't going to rely on them anymore. And I was talking to my wife about this. And my wife went, well, why don't we just open a recording studio? And so we went and found a building together and bought it and found an acoustician. I knew what I wanted to build. And we started building a facility while I was working at Metis. And in 2006, September or October 2006, we opened our doors. And my wife was working at DHL at the time. And she was doing importing for White Martins and Honda. And she was not very keen on her job at the moment. So I said, well, why don't you come manage the studio and run it with me? My Portuguese sucks. So she popped on over and we started to run the studio. And it it was a good time economically in Brazil at that period and the market was music market was doing great so it was just like a rocket ship just took off right away we started with one room and two years later we had a mastering room and a studio three and we were booked just full time it was really crazy and exciting amazing did you hire other engineers yes by luck i wasn't really working at Metis anymore but this band cpm 22 was doing a DVD for MTV. 
and IS Lumpa Gina, if I could come along and just help. They said, yeah, come on out. And we were doing it with a company called Gabison, which is one of the biggest sound companies in South America. And by chance, this dude named Adriano Daga was there, and he was in charge of the recording truck. And we just sort of hit it off and, you know, went and got some beers together. And I told him about my studio and he came and saw it. And then he started working there with me and we became production partners and spent a decade working together on hundreds of CDs together. He's the godfather of my first child and one of my best friends. And he's sort of my, I wouldn't call him a sidekick. He's just my production partner. We're still in contact. In fact, we're doing a DVD together right now. He's still in Brazil. Yes, he's still in Brazil, and I'm here, but we use cloud, and so we can mix the same project together like we used to, and it works really well. So a few questions. Did you find that, I assume that being that it was your studio, you were able to employ the creativity that you are accustomed to and didn't mic up the drums the same way every time and kind of broke from from the traditions of meet us and came to your studio with would you say did you bring an american approach to it yes that was the sales point in fact so when we sort of did the branding marketing for it we called it norcal studios and i ran it like an american facility with the organization of american facility so i took a lot of the documentation that had been provided by sylvia and in fact at that time i had written her and said can you send me some of your studio blocks and stuff like that and she sent me out some of that information and my wife took over that the financial and the management aspect of it and we ran a pretty tight shift over there but we also took the time to be incredibly creative and always had different drum sets up, different styles of micing the drum sets. The employees and I had to make sure we were going not quickly, but we were efficient. I had a $5 hotkey bet. So if you could out hotkey me, I would put $5 into the, the beer jar and vice versa. So, at, you know, Friday night, we'd have a 20 bucks to go out and get some beers together. And we did stuff like that to make the day go by with some fun. But yeah, we were a lot more creative and it worked out well. We immediately started getting a lot of the rock acts and even samba and pop music, everything under the sun. It was incredible. So the response was good. Yeah, the response was really good. Honestly, it really helped out that I was an American too. Brazilians really like American products. And the fact that it was an American producer admittedly helped me quite a bit. Being an American helped me quite a bit. They just believed that they'd get a better product because I was American. But I also had the training from American studios and the point of view and the creative aspect of American production, you could say, or they thought I did. And so a lot of people came after that because they thought they could get results, the same results with me in Brazil that they could in a studio in the United States. Hmm. So we tried to deliver that promise as best as possible. And I think it worked out because for a better part of a decade, we were slammed. Did you and your wife have challenges working with each other? Because I know if I worked with my wife at a, at a business, I think we would really get on each other's nerves. Yeah, working with my wife was, um, it was difficult. <laughs> yes, it was extremely difficult, but it was incredible. I owe my entire career to my wife. She is a, just a management monster, an incredibly intelligent human being. And she was able to really take, I think, the best of our studio and our talents and expose it to the outside market throughout all of Brazil. And she got us business that I would never think 
never thought in my wildest mind that we get we do advertisement we did siri for in portuguese composition for film sound design for film if it was audio we were doing it my wife was going after it but we argued a lot you know we were butting heads a lot but it was it ended up being for the betterment of the company i'm disorganized as hell and she's incredibly organized she would fight against creative moments you know, you have to get stuff done, which is good because it would put us back on track so we wouldn't waste too much time being quote unquote creative. And she ensured, you know, sort of secured the bottom line for everybody. And, you know, she ruled with a iron fist in the studio, but was good because it really took us forward. She didn't work in the studio as with production of any of the music. She worked quite a bit with production of jingles for advertisement and what we call local sound, which I think is voiceover here. Just people, the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday type of thing. <laughs> um, she did a lot of that. But yeah, that's a big rabbit hole to go down to. It's talking about the relationship in the studio. We had our ups and downs. Yeah. And it really wears on you to spend all day with that person and then go home with that person and not turn off business. And I think that was our biggest challenge is how do you turn off business? Yeah. Because when you go home, you want to, you know, you're out of the public view and you can kind of rehash and, you know, hey, you know, you did that thing today that really pissed me off. And Yeah. But the good thing about it is we got to go have coffees and cigarettes together. I got to eat lunch with her. When we had kids, we got the kids were at the studio with us. We had dogs and dogs were at the studios with us. I wasn't just working. I was working with my wife. As for as much it was difficult, it was also incredibly awesome because the person I love most in the world is working directly with me all day long and is taking care of my life. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better thing. Yeah. And I still have that. It's difficult. Yes, it's difficult, but it is the best option. If you can do that, it is an incredible option because I don't have a doubt in this world that she's got my back on it. Even if I screw something up so majorly, she's going to go and help fix it. That's right. And I don't think you can find another type of person really to do that. That's not your mom. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. Were there other challenges in Brazil? Bureaucracy, building codes? Corruption. corruption. Corruption, okay. Bureaucracy and corruption. Brazil is one of the most bureaucratic countries in the world. If you sign a document, you have to go to this place called a cartório to get your signature verified, and then you have to turn the document in. And then There's just so many things were so difficult. Banks are incredibly difficult. To get into a bank, you have to take everything out of your pockets, put it in this little slot, and then walk through this one of those spin doors. And if you have any metal, the spin door stops. You have to go back out and strip more just to walk into the bank. So that was frustrating. And there's some danger. I saw a lot of very heavy violence. We had our assistant engineer and his father kidnapped at gunpoint in front of my studio. And they disappeared for a couple hours. That, was, that wasn't nice. We had some interesting run-ins, blackmail. 
things that I don't really talk about, but that were incredibly frustrating and difficult. Everything has something called BV, which is BV, which is is someone, if you get government money to do a project, they have a lot of government money for projects. The person who got it, you have to pay a certain percentage and they want you to make fake receipts. Oh, it's just, and the whole market runs like that. So you have to sort of manipulate the market to, to survive in it. And we had a studio, we provided health insurance. There's a 13th salary that you have to pay employees. We made sure everybody was covered like an American company. And running that is just financially very difficult in Brazil. I mean, we had we had to work really hard to make ends meet for the first couple of years. You just said something. You said the thir- a 13th salary? Yes. What does that mean? So at the end of the year, you have to provide an extra salary for the employees, essentially. It's almost like a bonus. It would take me quite a long time to explain how it works, but it's basically end of the year bonus. It's an advance. To your employees? Yes, okay, to your okay. employees. So yeah, Brazil has some added difficulties that I've learned after a while. And the good thing about it now is that I'm back in the United States. I, I'm really good at smelling a rat because it was just part of the everyday business culture there. And a lot of stuff is that would not be normal in American business is the standard there. And it's why there's, it's so difficult to operate there and why the country is in the state it is in now is just because it's rampant corruption. It's not just political corruption, it's cultural. Everything has little payoffs and you have to give the guy who mows your lawn an extra bit of cash. Oh, it's just, it gets really, really frustrating after a certain period of time. When I got there, it was sort of, wouldn't say romantic, but you felt like, oh, just a little payoff and I could get something extra. Oh, that's cool. And then after living there for a decade, you're like, oh, this is so tiring. I have to pay for everything <laughs> that should be free. So it lost its the romantic aspect and just became incredibly frustrating. And it became a burden to the business because you can't make, it's difficult to plan for that. There's always a, a large barrier provided by corruption to get past when you make any business venture out there. Yeah, and observing any kind of, any form of violence, I don't care who you are, it, it becomes stress, that's a stressful thing. Oh, wait, I, I saw, saw people get shot. I saw robberies in front of me, saw dead people on the street, had the police put guns to my head, you know, you name it. Just, But it was, you live in a city that sort of lives and breathes like that. Sao Paulo is just a, that's Sao Paulo. You become used to it. And it took me coming home and seeing my hometown to go, oh, my God, I can you know walk home in the middle at three in the morning after having beers with my buddies and nothing's going to happen. In fact, a police officer who knew my dad saw me and picked me up and gave me a ride home. <laughs> so it's you know dramatically, dramatically different. So you were there for a decade. You all made the decision to come back to the United States. Yes. And I assume that you come back with a, a, a renewed appreciation. There's not a day I don't step out my door and excuse the expression and go, fuck yeah. I really, <laughs> I mean, I really appreciate what we have here, but I really appreciate what I did there. I mean, everything I achieved there has really granted me the life I have now. And it still does because I worked full time in Brazil. When I went there the first time, and I think it was November of 2002, Two or 2003 with my wife, I remember seeing a poster for this band called Angra and this band called Shaman, which are the big metal acts there outside of Sepultura. 
And my wife goes, who knows? Maybe if you move here, you'll produce these guys. And I ended up, I produced an Angra record and I ended up producing Andre Matos, which is the singer for Shema and used to be the singer for Angra and all the metal bands. And it was sort of like a dream come through, true at that point for me. It was, began dominating the exact market I wanted to be the big producer in. Then we migrated to other styles and it's just, we got tons and tons and tons of bands. It was great. And when it was over, it was over. I want to ask, just to to cap off our conversation about Brazil, when producing a Brazilian band, if your Portuguese sucks, how is communication? Well, I was able to, the two years at Midas really were my two years of learning Portuguese. Mm. And in fact, when I began producing, the first band I produced was a band called Escambau. And I just sort of did it off the cuff and invented words. And it became really funny and it actually added something to the production, I think. And that's where I learned my audio language in Brazil. And I'm actually more comfortable nowadays producing in Portuguese than I am in English because they spent a decade doing it. And when I go produce bands here, I have a great difficulty in explaining certain aspects because my toolbox is so little language-wise because I've spent the greater part of my adulthood and career producing in Portuguese, and I still do. I still spend... I would say 60% of my day speaking in Portuguese. Interesting. So learning the language after two years, I got a hold of it and just went with it. And it it was never really that difficult, I don't think. It made for some funny moments. And I said a large amount of things that I was warned about, but you learn, but it never impeded a session. And in fact, it, if anything, it made a lot of really good jokes that exist until today with my friends. (laughs) About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. So you're back in the United States. How many kids do you have? I have two kids. Benjamin, who's my youngest, and Ian, who's my oldest. So a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. Ah, two boys. I know that routine. You're back in Davis. Yes. And Davis, for the listener, is about, I'm going to say, with average traffic, probably about an hour and a half for me to get to where Brendan is at from uh, Lafayette, California. Tell me about life in Davis and tell me about your current professional life. What are you doing? Well, I think I should start in Brazil. The studio was really crazy. And at this point, my our last year, we had Benjamin was born and my wife was basically full-time at home mom and she was still managing the studio but she wasn't present and we just had tons and tons of bands we came home for a christmas 
And on the ride from LA to Davis, we both looked at each other and went, it's time to move home. I just had a massively successful, but incredibly stressful and socially disappointing year in my life. I was just sort of all-time career high, all-time life low. Just things weren't working out. You know, life, you know, two kids, two dogs, no sleep, running a major facility. Wife's not there anymore. It was just, it was a lot to handle. It was too much to handle at that point. And we were over it, I think. We had achieved what we wanted to achieve, we had achieved. So we decided to pack up and move home. So we came home and informed our parents of our decision. And then we informed our employees and we're deciding how we we're going to take care of our employees, especially Adriana, who had worked with us for 10 years. And Andre, my assistant, who had been there, for, I think, six or seven. So we we're working out, you know, giving them Pro Tools systems or keeping part of the studio open. And suddenly, Adriano got a call from the biggest network, television network and media conglomerate there called Global. And they said, hey, do you have a little band that can try out? We're doing this little program. And at night, we'd been recording Adriano's band called Malta. It's like a Brazilian nickelback. And it was just a project everybody was doing. So they got some songs together and went to the tryout. Well, at the tryout, they kept on being asked to play the songs over and over again. No other band did that. And then they got invited on the show. So we took a Rascal Flat song and converted it into Portuguese. And they did the first show and they won the first show. They stayed on. And just the single just sell, sold like hotcakes. And they kept on winning and winning and winning and winning. And we eventually won the program. And their disc became the highest selling CD in the last like, rock CD in the last like 10 or 15 years there. I mean, we went gold like in four hours and within a couple months was triple platinum and for brazil that doesn't happen i mean everything there when you release the cd you send it to the fabrication plants and you send it to the the pirated guys to go onto the streets so <laughs> that's how it works there we call them camelos and they sell the cds you know the cdrs so there's two markets there and so to actually sell that many cds was amazing and they were all over the television playing stadiums. It was crazy. And I ended up producing more of the sort of American Idol-esque bands that last year and ended up working again with a band called Sumbo, which is one of the bigger Sumbo bands there. So I, my last year was just prolific. My wife was like, just make money so we can move. So we had this massive last year, stressful, just horrible hours. And then, you know, the last month, I just ripped out all the cables and packed up all the gear. <laughs> kept the stuff I wanted, left the rest in Brazil to be sold and put the building on the market. And we got in an airplane and flew home. And I really thought my career was going to end. I had bought a pair of monitors and a Pro Tools system and an EQ and a compressor. And my first week, I ended up, when we, after we moved into our new house, I installed it in the guest bedroom and the project started rolling in. So I was mixing the mastering stuff in the guest bedroom. I had a pretty sweet setup. I mean, I had some Egglestone speakers, which are incredible, and some barefoots and nothing pro-level studio stuff, you know, in a guest bedroom. And I, so I got a John Brandt design studio built, which is phenomenal. I built it in my house and I just started working. And in the first couple of months, I got a job at Pinnacle College, which is one of these, you know, cookie cutter, you're going to be an audio engineer college and learn how to be a professor, dip my foot in the water for the first time in teaching audio. And then I applied for a position at American River College, where 
as of now, I'm a professor and I teach advanced audio courses there two days a week. And the rest of the time I spend in my mixing mastering facility. And I rarely do client local clients. Most of my stuff is central in South America, Japan. I have some stuff in Korea and China and some odd random countries around the world. But I've been able to work full time doing mixing and mastering around the globe from my home in Davis. So in Brazil, this last year, I worked with Lulu Santos, uh, Daniela Mercury, Cayetano Veloso, Paula Fernandes, Georgi Benjor, Haping Hood, Max Viano, who's the son of Dijavan, people in the Brazilian market that I only dreamt of working while I was there and now are clients of mine, which is incredible. So everybody's sending you stuff to mix and master. Yeah, I just did a track for a guy named Tubarão Bachada, who's a rapper there, and it was him and Snoop Dogg. So we just sent a track for that. And I've got some other tracks right now that, you know, you pop up the DVD and go, oh my God, look who's on it. So it was a successful move. I'm very happy with the move. My wife is now a, she was managing a career of a number of artists, including Kiko Loreiro who's now in Megadeth. And when Kiko joined Megadeth, my wife just said, okay, I'm done. And just sort of ended our contract with him. And now she is a special educator at Holmes Junior High, Davis, California, and is very happy. So she works in special education and I work in the studio, man, as a professor. It's been a dramatic life change, but it's been, I'm very happy with our decision. And Brazil's economy absolutely just collapsed and they had a they're in a recession right now, politically and economically. It's just very complicated there. So it was a it was good timing for us, and we're happy we did it. And life has improved. Yeah, I would I would say so. And you're able to spend time with your kids and not have such a an, an intense schedule. Yeah, I get to some days. I get to take my kids to school. I get to pick them up from school. I get to do after-school activities with them. They can come in my studio and play with all my guitar pedals and buttons while I work. I have weekends. That's been a great thing. I don't work on weekends anymore. Every once in a while, to the dismay of everybody in my house, but every once in a while, I'll have to dip into the studio on a Saturday, but it's really rare. So I, I have a lot more family time and just time for myself, which has been something I haven't had in a long time, you know. The other day, I got to play guitar for the first time in, I think, five years, which is, <laughs> I suck at guitar now. That's what I found out, but it was nice. We're almost out of time, but I, I definitely, we have to talk about this because it uh, occurred in our earlier conversations that we were having. Tell the story of your gear, uh, <laughs> of, of the gear arriving from Brazil. So when we moved, we put everything into a storage container, and I took my entire mastering rig, which is an SPL 2050 EQ and tons of other mastering gear, microphones, just thousands and thousands of dollars worth of equipment, all my photos, our entire life we put into a container. And it was supposed to arrive two months later. Like we were going to arrive and then two months later it was going to arrive. On a boat. Yeah. Three months later, they couldn't tell us where it was or it was in Santos still, which is the big port there. And they wanted more money. And then the insurance papers weren't correct. And three months later, something was still wrong. Then four months later, it apparently got shipped, but they didn't know where it was. And we got these very strange emails to pay more money. And stuff started to really get corrupt, like normal. So six, seven months in, I phoned a childhood friend of mine who's an FBI agent. And they actually had, as far as I knew, they had our stuff at the port were blackmailing another company with it. I have no idea. I can 
I can't really remember, but they're using ours as our container as leverage for other payments and they wouldn't deliver it. And my, all my equipment in my entire life have been sitting on ports by saltwater for, you know, seven or eight months and I couldn't work. And I had a band coming in September. It was, I think, September, you know, 1st in September 8th or 7th, a band was arriving from Brazil to do a record. And I literally had a Avid Omni interface. <laughs> that was it. And a couple of mics, like a 414. That was it. I didn't have any of my guitar amps, like my diesel, my angles, nothing. So my FBI agent friend said, you need to phone the Federal Maritime Commission. So I phoned the Federal Maritime Commission and they phoned me back and I sent them all the details and they phoned back a couple more times very quickly along with the FBI to get some extra information and receive some emails. And promptly at seven in the morning the next day, the shipping shipping company in Florida that had been using our equipment or everything as leverage for against the other companies said, oh, we're delivering your stuff tomorrow. So on September 7th at like 7.30 at night, a shipping container arrived and they dumped like 115 boxes on my front lawn. They were full of cockroaches. They had other people's moves in it, like stuff that wasn't even ours and had all my studio equipment. As we turned the studio equipment on, half of it would just, you know, turn on and then blow its fuse. It was insane. So we just ported it all into the backyard and the rest, I just was in anvil cases. So I just threw it into the studio and had brought my patch bay from the original patch bay from the studio and just plugged it in. The next day we started to make a record. <laughs> We already had the drums recorded and eventually, you know, I had to send all the equipment. My SPL EQ got lost three times, once by UPS, once by FedEx, then another time. And eventually Herman Gear from SPL had it sent to Germany and they fixed it and sent it back to me. But I still have some broken equipment from that time that I just haven't gotten around to, to repairing. It was not good. Had you not had your childhood FBI friend, do you think you ever would have got it back? Yes, because I eventually would have phoned the authorities, but he just helped me Expedite. get through it because I knew we were trying to avoid doing that. But eventually I just got fed up and went, this isn't going to work and this is really illegal. And it really worked very quickly and it made me really appreciate how everything works here in the United States because everything works here in the United States. And we got our stuff eventually. The disappointing thing is we had already spent money to get new stuff. Mm. So when everything arrived, it was sort of anticlimactic at some points because our everything that we were waiting for didn't come. So we bought it again. So we had <laughs> we had twice as much stuff that we didn't want. Yeah. But my equipment arrived. And I was able to start working, which was an, an added bonus. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I know that when we talked the other day, you were reaching out for another reason. And then I kind of was like, hey, you got to come on the show. So I really appreciate you responding very quickly to my request and, and opening up about your your story because it's it's really fascinating to me. And it's great to have you on. Great to meet you. And I look forward to meeting you in person. Well, thank you for having me. This was, this was awesome to do. We'll put links in the show notes for people to reach out if they want to get some work done or, or ask a question. Great to have you on. Great to meet you. We'll meet again. And thank you so much. Thank you very much. Brendan Duffy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being with me today. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Want to thank all the crew for the show. That includes Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, and Mr. Chuck Smith on the voice. So spread the word, like us on social media, tell all your friends, and uh, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.